0: Uh, we're gonna be looking at Genesis chapter 49 today, and looking forward to you being able to do this with you. Um, as we continue our final studies in the book of Genesis, we're looking at Jacob's final moments. Uh, last week, if you were here with us out in the field, uh, you know that was hot. Uh, so I'm thankful for indoors and for air conditioning. Uh, and that means I can preach longer, right? Uh, uh last week I actually preached pretty long out in the pulpit. They told me, uh, they told me that they wanted me to preach until around 11.30 so it'd be closer to lunchtime. Uh, and then, you know, it just kept getting hotter and hotter and <laughs> hotter as we went along. But, uh, you know, we, we almost did it. We went to about 11.25. So, um, if you were here last week, you remember, uh, perhaps, uh, that we were talking about some of Jacob's final moments. Uh, he discussed his burial plot with Joseph. And then in Genesis 48, there's this very special time he has with his grandsons Ephraim and Manasseh. He pulls them close, and he actually, I believe, adopts them as his own sons, and then he blesses them. And in his blessing, we learn something about God. God does not sometimes work according to human calculations. If you remember, uh, uh, elderly Jacob, 137, crosses his hands to bless them. Extending the the, the favored blessing to the youngest. This doesn't make sense according to human standards, but but actually God was in it. And in that cross-handed picture, we get an idea of sometimes how God works. Ephraim was rewarded on the basis of no human merit, no human effort of his own. But God can have mercy on whom he will have mercy, as Romans will later on say. And so uh, we learned this great lesson there. We also saw at the end of chapter 48 a gift of land that Jacob decides to give to only one of his boys. And guess what? He gives it to Joseph again. Uh, He had given him a special coat earlier. Now he gives him special land uh, at the end of that chapter. As we come to Genesis 49, we're still in Jacob's final moments. He's on his deathbed. That's still the scene uh, here in the passage. At the end of Genesis 49, he will actually pull his feet up into his bed and breathe his last. Um, However, before he does that, he has time to pronounce a blessing, uh, in some cases what commentators call an anti-blessing, on each one of his sons. Now, if you're paying attention so far in Genesis, you'll know the answer to this next question. How many sons does Jacob have? Twelve. Okay, I heard one person say it. Twelve, twelve sons. So if, you know, for the, the the ones among us who are the most intelligent today, you might begin putting this together, and you say, okay, he has a blessing for each of his twelve sons, and you, you think, oh no, pastor's going to have a twelve-point sermon. <laughs> okay, well, my sermons do follow the text of Scripture. Okay, and uh, let me just tell you to take heart. I decided earlier today to divide this chapter up into two. Okay, up into two sermons, uh, we're going to look at verses 1 through 12 today, and then verses 13 and beyond after that. I actually have three points that hold all of the chapter together, by the way. The first is the opening, that's verses 1 and 2. Uh, the second point is the blessing, verses 3 through 27, and then there's the close, or the closing, verse twenty-eight. So one of those points has twelve subpoints. Uh, we'll, we'll talk about that later. But um, we see these different things uh together. The opening verses one and two, the blessing verses three through twenty seven, and the conclusion. Okay? And again, uh we're only dealing with the first twelve verses today. We're gonna deal with four of the sons uh today in their blessing. Well, the opening comes in verses 1 and 2, and so I invite you to look down there in your Bibles, verse 1. Then Jacob called his sons and said, Gather yourselves together that I might tell you what shall happen to you in days to come. Assemble and listen, O sons of Jacob. Listen to Israel, your father. So as we start in this passage, there are a few things I want to point out to you that will, I think, help you with Genesis 49 and what's going on as a whole. Okay, there are actually two things I'll mention. Uh, First of all, this passage contains poetry. If you're reading in most versions, English versions of Scripture, you'll, you'll notice that the font does some weird things. It doesn't all stay on the left side, but it's now centered or something like that, like in my ESV Bible I have before me. And that's usually an indication that you're dealing with a different type of genre in the Bible, and that's the case here. This is a poem. This is poetry. And it's a special kind of poetry because this poetry contains prophetic oracles. So foundationally, I think that's important to know about this passage. This is a long poem filled with biblical prophecy about each of these boys and their descendants. And we know that's the case because he tells them in verse 1, in the middle of the verse, he's going to show them what shall happen to you in days to come. And then although we didn't read verse 28, later on verse 28 when he's wrapping up the blessings and putting the closing stamp on it, he says this is true about the twelve tribes of Israel. Well, the tribes of Israel don't even uh, necessarily exist yet. This is coming true for them. And so he's telling us that the material in these blessings is intended for more than just the boys but for their descendants, the 12 tribes that come from them. And I would suggest that these are not just wishes or best guesses that Jacob gives about the boys. You know, he's seen their past, he sees their present trajectory, and he's just going to take some guesses about where they're going to end up. That's not what's going on here. This is prophetic. He's functioning as a prophet. Jacob has had plenty of opportunities to hear from God directly. God has met with him face to face. And this is an example of where God gives him prophecy regarding the future that's going to come true regarding these boys. And these prophetic statements are so stunning. Once you look at them and you think about when they were written and when the things come true later, it's so stunning that many liberal scholars want to suggest that a later editor came and brought these back to Jacob and put these in this section because this couldn't possibly be true in advance. It's so accurate. Well, we reject those liberal scholars. And we say this is a powerful testimony or demonstration of God's foresight. He sees all things in the future as if they've already happened Nothing is outside of God's knowledge or foreknowledge, and these ancient words are a testimony of that. So this is a passage that contains poetry that's prophetic. Now, the second thing I'll tell you here is just to whet your appetite for something else that you'll have to do in your free time. Okay, um, This long poem, Genesis 49, verses 3 through 27... Uh, is the first long poem in Genesis, and it is most similar in the biblical text to the the last long poem in the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. It's very similar to a long poem at the end of the book of Deuteronomy, in Deuteronomy chapter 33, verses 2 through 29. And that long poem is usually referred to as the Song of, does anyone know, Song of Moses. Okay, and what's interesting is Moses, years later, will pattern his final words to the 12 tribes of Israel off of what Jacob does on his deathbed here. Okay, and there's so many similarities. It's it's worth you this week reading Genesis 49 and reading Deuteronomy 33 to see the similarities there, and it is, I think, a powerful testimony to the literary masterpiece called the Pentateuch. So that the last book in the Pentateuch ends with a a prophetic poem. And that's the the first book, I should say, Genesis. And so does the very end of the Pentateuch, Deuteronomy. And so with that in mind, let's dig into this prophetic poetry produced by God through the dying voice of Jacob. We get into uh, my second point, the blessings or anti-blessings in verses 3 through 27. And here Jacob, on his deathbed, calls his oldest son, Reuben, in verses 3 and 4, to receive the first blessing. Look in your Bible at verse 3. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, the firstfruits of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power, unstable as water. You shall not have preeminence. Because you went up to your father's bed. Then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. Jacob on his deathbed calls Reuben. Imagine as things get started, Reuben hears his name. And he grimaces. Oh, no. He's the oldest, right? He always goes first. If You're the oldest, you understand that. I'm, I'm the only, so I always went first and last. Uh, <laughs> Reuben's always going first, and I think he knows this is likely not going to go very well. Now, there's much of interest in verses 3 and 4 about Reuben. Probably most significant, at least initially, as an observation, is to observe how Jacob refers to him using second- and third-person pronouns. Okay, well, what does that mean? Well, if you're looking in your Bible at verses 3 and 4, he says, Reuben, you—that's second-person—you are my firstborn— Later on, verse 4, unstable as water, you shall not have the preeminence because you went up to your father's bed, then you defiled it. But then he transitions at the end to third person. He went up to my couch. Here, the way the language works is Jacob is directly addressing Reuben at the beginning. It's like Jacob on the deathbed talking to Reuben, this is what you did. And then at the end, he turns his attention to everyone else there and he says, he... He did this, perhaps to the other brothers. He went up to my couch. Now, Reuben had privilege and position. He was the firstborn and entitled to privilege because of that. But the preeminence is not something that he maintains because the text says he's unstable as water, which I think is a pretty clear imagery in English. He is undisciplined, unstable, reckless. And, of course, Reuben's worst offense has already been described in Genesis. Do you remember this? Reuben's worst offense was that he was immoral with one of his father's wives. Now, it's interesting that before this, we only know of this in... There's only one verse given in all of Genesis to this. And I'll remind you of it: It's Genesis 35 22. So you can flip over there, or I can just read it to you. Genesis 35, 22. And this is the one verse. This is, when Israel lived in that land, Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard of it. Okay, and that's like all we have. So you're just left re- you know, thinking, like, what in the world is going to happen? Israel heard about this. He's not going to let this go, I think, right? Well, until his deathbed. Years and years later, he comes back. And this is what I think Jacob is referring to when he says, Reuben went up to his father's bed and couch. He was so undisciplined and reckless that he violated his father's marriage with Bilhah. So not only then is his birthright and position of leadership taken away from him as the oldest His whole tribe, if you continue to study Genesis, his whole tribe, well, the Pentateuch in Scripture, his whole tribe will struggle, actually, to exist in the future. Things will get so bad for Reuben that in Moses' song at the end of Deuteronomy, he feels compelled to intercede for Reuben's tribe that they would not completely disappear. So Deuteronomy 33 and verse 6 uh Moses said this about Reuben. He said, let Reuben live and not die. Okay, of course, Reuben has already died by that time when Moses is talking. He's talking about the descendants of Reuben, his tribe. Let Reuben live and not die. He's praying to God that the whole tribe wouldn't be wiped out. Okay, so Reuben does continue to exist in some way or another. If if you see uh, in your Bible, if you have a map, you'd see even Reuben does get some land. If you got a map of the twelve tribes of Israel and you, you notice, uh, Reuben's spot east of the Jordan is not a very good spot because he's surrounded by enemies. But the tribe of Reuben, as you continue to read through scripture, you'll, you'll never find anyone of significance coming from this tribe. There's not one judge, not one prophet, not one king, not one leader of Israel that will come from these people. Reuben is a story of privilege lost. Firstborn, all the advantages, strength, yet made a terrible sinful decision, and because of that brought serious consequences. Before we move on, let me just put an appeal out to all of us as followers of Christ, but especially our young people. Young people, I want you to pay close attention to Reuben here and know that your privileges and gifts do not determine your destiny. Privileges and gifts do not determine your, your destiny, but your priorities and your choices, personal, individual choices, do. Do not put confidence in your looks, your gifts, your talents, or your own natural abilities. Whether it's your parents, your brains, your athletic talents, your fine arts abilities... All of those things by themselves count as nothing in the kingdom of God. Instead, young people, live for something greater. Greater than those things. Or live with those gifts and talents in line to pursue Christ, his kingdom, and righteousness as your highest goal. Some of our teenagers, for instance, you've been here for quite some time. You've been able to hear me preach for the last seven years. you heard me say things like this over and over and over and over again. Live for Christ as your highest goal. Do you want to live a life that matters? Center your choices and your priorities on Jesus Christ. Use all of your gifts and talents to serve him with this life. That sets us up to look at the next two sons here. We move on to uh, guys I'll call partners in crime. Um, One commentary called them a pair of culprits. Uh, Simeon and Levi, verses 5 through 7. So, Reuben's done. Okay, and then the next two come forward. Simeon and Levi, wherever they are in the room, their names are called. (laughs) They're going to come forward to the deathbed. And the very fact that they're they're named together is probably an indication that it's not going to go very well for them either. Look at verse 5 through 7 here. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Weapons of violence are their swords. Let my soul come not into their counsel. Oh, my glory, be not joined to their company. For in their anger they killed men. And in their willfulness they hem strung oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. And one of the things that's interesting to me reading through these is it seems like some of the brothers get kind of ripped off on the deathbed situation here. But I know that's not true because God's inspired. Some of the brothers get like one verse later on. If you read ahead this week, you're like, one of them's called like a strong donkey, and there's not much more called, talked about him. Other brothers get like five verses, more moments at the deathbed here. These two brothers uh, get no individual time to go together. But a few important things should be pointed out about Simeon and Levi. First, Jacob describes them as men of violence, anger, and wrath. Now, again, if you've been here as we've been going through Genesis, you probably know what this refers back to. This refers back to a time when they killed all the men of a city to avenge their sister Dinah. Remember that? At the end of that chapter, after being confronted by Jacob, they asked, Shall shall we allow them to treat our, our sister as a prostitute? So they're avenging Dinah. These were men of anarchy and not justice. And the undoing of these two men, Simeon and Levi, come in one moment, one decision where they brutally kill all the men of the city of Shechem because of the violent act of one man in that city. And we find out in this text that they also, they they not only kill all the men in the city, they hamstrung, or hamstr- what the present tense of that would be. They hamstrung the oxen that they captured. Okay, now, in Genesis, earlier, we, we don't read of that. We know they, they take in all the property of Shechem. But here we learn a little bit more. They hamstrung all the oxen. And I think there's no real reason for them to do that. Okay, but they punished the oxen in painful ways as well so that they could never be used as farm animals again. Because of this, because of their anger and violent wrath they lost their chance to obtain the birthright and the blessing of the firstborn Reuben. They don't get this blessing either. And again, I encourage you to pay close attention here. I think all of us need to consider this. Their their daily decision, their decision in this matter, allowing anger and wrath to overflow and violence, caused destruction to themselves and their families. And I think that the same can be true for us. Anger, for instance, which is right, it's right in this biblical text as being one of their main issues. Anger is not just their demise. Anger is a destructive force in many marriages and families across time and across the world today. Unfortunately, it's likely true that there are wives in this room that could tell stories about their husband's anger. And how that has brought devastating consequences upon their home. Now, that's not to say that there aren't angry women in marriages either. That can be true too. But regardless, as we're looking back on these two men, Levi and Simeon, and their unbridled anger and wrath, we can sit in judgment on them, but we need to realize that the same can be true for us. We can demonstrate anger and wrath that produces terrible consequences in our own home. By God's grace, we need to seek help through the Spirit, through other brothers and sisters, so that this isn't true in our homes, like it was with Levi and Simeon. And so they were men of violence, anger, and wrath. That's how Jacob describes them. And then second, he suggests that he's uneasy to come into their council or to join them in their company. Okay, right? That's in verse 6. That is, Jacob says that These violent men can't be trusted to produce a sound judgment. That's how I take to go into their counsel. I'm not going to Levi and Simeon to get like a fair, well-balanced judgment. And I don't trust them to uh, provide safe fellowship. I don't want to be in their company. It's nothing to do with these reckless sons. But then finally, in verse 7, Jacob pronounces a punishment that's very significant on them. And if you're looking at verse 7, the way I would understand this is their judgment is twofold. One comes from Jacob himself. That's how I take the first part of verse 7. And then something from God himself in the second part of verse 7. So at the beginning of verse 7, Jacob pronounces a curse on their anger and wrath. Okay, so instead of getting a blessing, they get the opposite. They get a curse. And it's interesting the word cursed here is the same word we saw earlier in Genesis with, with Noah cursing his grandson because of his son's action. Cursed be Canaan. You remember that? Cursed be Canaan. Here in this prophetic oracle, Jacob issues a significant curse on the anger and wrath of Levi and Simeon, and this will come with significant lasting consequences on the boys. But then as you turn to verse 7, there, there's, uh, in the middle of verse 7, there is an interesting part here. It says, I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. My personal perspective here is that that is from God himself. Of course, it all comes from God, because prophetic or, oracle through Jacob. But this is about God himself. God himself will divide and scatter them without their own land. So the descendants of these men, Levi and Simeon, will have no permanent land designation of their own in the promised land. Simeon will begin with some land in the desert regions within the land of Judah. Uh, I was uh, uh, thinking about putting a map up here today. I probably should have done that. But if you have a map of the 12 tribes of Israel, you notice down at the bottom is the tribe of Judah. Okay? Okay. And Simeon's land is always pictured completely within the tribe of Judah. Okay, and depending on how people visualize that, they'll draw a circle, put Simeon, or some some people even put like faint lines and write Simeon over it. And I think that's probably better. It won't take long until the tribe of Simeon becomes absorbed or assimilated completely into the people of Judah. So get this, like, they get some land initially, but it's within Judah, and then eventually, it just, everything mixes together, and there is really no remaining Simeon. One well, of the interesting things I saw this week in the book of Numbers, the book of Numbers is arranged around two censuses, one in Numbers 1, one in Numbers 26. Numbers chapter 1 through 25 is the tale of the first generation who leaves Israel or who leaves Egypt, they're the Exodus generation. And in that first census, in Numbers chapter 1, you read this about Simeon. You read that there were 59,300 men in the tribe of Simeon. But then, in the next generation, Numbers chapter 26, there are only 22,200 men. And so within these one generation, you lose 37,000 men. Simeon's tribe will not maintain their unique family identity and their land. And then you learn about Levi here. Levi fares a little bit better because uh, future generations of Levi are faithful to God and stand against idolatry. There's a key point later on in the Pentateuch. When the children of Israel are, they're engaging in a form of idolatry that includes terrible immorality as well, and a Levite puts it all to, puts it all to rest. He stands up, he does something dramatic, and he stops it. I think partially because of that, the faithful actions of future generations to honor God, uh, this curse over Levi turns into a little bit of a blessing. So that what we, we read about Levi later is that Levi does receive 48 cities. tribe of Levi, they get 48 cities scattered throughout all of the other lands. And, prior the most significant blessing given to Levi and his tribe because of the faithful decisions of some of them is they become priests in the tabernacle and temple. Special servants of God. They have no land or inheritance, but the Lord is their inheritance. The descendants of Levi become much for God and reveal that sin does not have to define or damn us. God provides a way for later descendants of Levi to break free of the curse here. And if you know the rest of Scripture, you know the same is true for us. We're all under the curse of sin, but later on we find out that there is a way for us to break free from the curse of sin and death. And that is through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Well, that's what becomes of Levi and Simeon. The the next brother and the last one we're going to look at today is uh, Judah, and he fares much better. Look in your Bible at verse 8. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you've gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion and as a lioness. Who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples." Binding the foal to the, the vine and his donkey colt to the choice vine, he has washed his garments in wine and his vesture, vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. Okay, so for the rest of our time we're going to look at this ancient prophecy because there's some very interesting stuff here about Judah. Judah ties with Joseph for the longest blessing statement. And Genesis 49, five verses here about Jacob. And it seems to me that in these verses, verses 8 through 12, Jacob portrays three qualities of Judah's line that are significant. The first quality is he or his line will be powerful, verses 8 and 9. Jacob describes Judah's future power as a people in verses eight and nine, and he pictures this power as power like a victor and power as a lion. Okay, so those are the two images that he'll give here of Judah, because Judah will be victorious over his enemies. If you see in verse eight, it says, "Your hands shall be on the neck of your enemies," because he will be victorious over his enemies, his brothers. The other tribes will praise him and bow down before him as a ruler. Okay? So someone is going to come from Judah's line as a powerful ruler who will subvert the enemies of Israel and the Israelite people will give honor and recognition to such a ruler. Okay? Now... This is true in some ways of a great king that will come and you can read about in the Old Testament Scripture. A great king by the name of David, king of Israel. And there are actually different texts in the Bible that talk about the neck of the enemies of David. Think of one, Psalm 18 and verse 40, where David says that God gave him the neck of his enemies. David is a powerful victor, and this passage, I think, may in some ways refer to him. But, as we keep reading, we learn this powerful ruler is not only a victorious over enemies, so that the brothers and their tribes bow to him, we also learn that he is powerful like a lion, in verse 9. Okay, verse 9 is really important, as I think it gives birth to this whole concept An imagery that later on the New Testament will develop, the lion that comes from the tribe of who? Judah, right? Now, let's just think about this imagery for a second. Lions were fairly common in ancient Israel, and they were feared for their strength and ferocity. And Jacob says here that Judah's tribe will be like a young, strong lion who goes up, crouches, and stoops down after capturing its prey. In verse 9, I think there are a few ways we can take this. I do think in some ways he's talking about Judah's tribe as a people in the future. They will become the most prominent and significant tribe of the southern kingdom of Israel so that other countries won't even dare rouse Judah. (laughs) the tribe of Judah. But of course, it's also true that later on in the New Testament, the beloved apostle John, in the book of Revelation, receives a vision of one like a lion who comes from Judah's tribe. Who, if you're reading Revelation 5, who is conquered and who is worthy to take the scroll from God's right hand and open it. So like as I'm reading this part of the narrative in Jacob's ancient words of prophecy, you get to this point, and I think we begin to realize that he's not just talking about Judah, the person. He's not necessarily even talking about just Judah, the tribe, or, or, or David as a king, but there's some future ruler, some some person who will come from his line, who will accomplish these things. And that's where Jacob describes to us the dignity of this future ruler in verse 10. So we saw his power. He's like a victor, like a lion. But then we see the dignity, and the dignity is that assigned to a king. In verse 10, Jacob says that Judah has a scepter and a ruler's staff. Okay? And both of those picture royalty. Like, you know, the the scepter and the royal staff of a king. And this line of Judah will possess these things until one day tribute comes to him and the obedience of the peoples. Now when you come to this little phrase in verse 10, tribute comes to him, you come to probably one of the most difficult passages in all of Genesis to figure out. In fact, if you're reading in different English versions of Scripture, there are different ways that this has been taken by the translations to try to make sense out of what is going on here. Some uh, translations will say, until Shiloh comes, as if there's like some city here. And that that could be a possibility. It's my least favorite way of looking at this. Another decent way of looking at this uh, is to translate it this, that kingship will continue in Judah's line until... It could be translated this way, until... He comes whose right it is. What right is it? The right to bear the scepter or the crown. Until he comes, the one comes, whose right it is to bear the scepter or crown. It seems that Jacob is beginning to portray one descendant who will rise to rule over the nation with strength and dignity. But I like the ESV translation, until tribute, that's honor or recognition, comes to him who, Judah's future ruler, the ruler that comes uh, to him. Kingship will continue until tribute comes to the one who has the right to rule. I think the next little phrase helps us maybe even understand things a little bit better. It says uh, that the obedience of the people will, all peoples will also be given to him kingship will continue in Judah's line until one comes to whom the peoples will give obedience. The word peoples here is plural, and it likely means that Jacob sees not only Jacob's brothers, Jacob's sons, and their descendants bowing, but also foreign nations. Okay, and so with this passage, I think Jewish expectation of a future Messiah will begin to grow. The Jews foresaw that the Messiah would be one who would rule not only over Israel, but over the whole world. The peoples will obey him. And the Jewish people came to realize that their powerful Messiah, who would set up a kingdom over all of Israel and over the whole world, uh, would come out from the tribe of Judah. And if you've been paying attention today at all, you you realize, I think you begin to realize who I think that this is talking about. This is talking about Jesus. Jesus, who came in human form as a descendant of Judah, then is given a royal scepter, and it will never depart from him. Yet I think this part of the prophetic blessing in verse 10, if I were marking in my Bible, which I do a lot... And by, you know, by me talking about myself, I'm encouraging you to do so. Uh, if I'm marking my Bible along these, next to these two little phrases at the end of verse 10, until tribute comes to him, uh, and to him shall be the obedience of the people, I would write one word. I'd write millennium. The millennial kingdom. I don't think those things have been fulfilled yet concerning Christ. During Jesus' first coming, he came and died in our place on the cross, he rose again by the power of the Holy Spirit, and he went to heaven to be with God at his right hand. And I don't think that these things have been clearly fulfilled yet. But the Scriptures also speak of a time in the future when Jesus returns and he sets up a kingdom over Israel and the whole world. I like how one man described this. He said it this way. He says, uh, verse 10 is ultimately a reference to the second coming When the Messiah will come to rule the earth. The word peoples is plural and therefore a reference to the non-Jewish nations or Gentiles. The Gentiles will obey Christ's messianic rule in the millennial kingdom. That is, I think the end of verse 10 is speaking of a future day when all nations will submit to Jesus, the Lion of the tribe of Judah. But then he continues to describe in verses 11 and 12, so just it gets a little bit easier. Thank you for digging in there, but a little bit easier to understand in verses 11 and 12 when he describes him not only as powerful, not only as having the dignity of a king with all people submitting to him, but he describes him as prosperous. In verses 11 and 12. Look there again in your Bible. Binding his fowl to a vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine he has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. I think this prophetic utterance still refers to Christ here. A future ruler who would be, bring abundance and prosperity to the people of this world. He's, he's so rich that the text says he will tie his donkey to choice vines. Vines have the ripest of grapes, the richest of grapes growing on them. So I ask you, you know, what, what happens when you tie a donkey to a choice vine? Okay, if you're like me, you say, I have no idea. I don't know anything about donkeys and choice vines. Well, let, let me use a modern analogy. Uh, what happens if we tie a toddler to a tree full of candy? Right? He eats. And he eats without conscience. Okay? This ruler is going to be so wealthy that there'll be wine in abundance. He doesn't care if a donkey eats up all the choice grapes off of a vine. His wealth is also pictured by him washing his clothes not in water, but in what? See there? His wash water is what? Wine. Now that's a confusing imagery too. You can see why it's, you know, this whole week I've been confused by this passage. Maybe that's coming out a little bit in my preaching. Hopefully not. Using wine to wash clothes. My, my first thought I couldn't get over for the longest time is, how would that be effective? That's going to be like doing the worst. You know. But the imagery is not regarding the effectiveness. The imagery is about the extravagance, the wealth of this future ruler. Of so much wine and abundance, he could like use it to wash clothes. There's an Old Testament professor who is at Southern Seminary. His name is Jim Hamilton. He loves to tell the story of a former NBA player by the name of Amari Stoudemire. Amari Stoudemire was so rich that he would buy wine and he would fill up his hot tub with it and take baths in wine for its medicinal reasons. Okay, I don't know if that's effective. Please don't try that at home. I'm not suggesting that, you know, there's something about putting that air into the wine or whatever. But why did it? He did it because he could. He was rich. It meant nothing to him. I didn't imagine how much that would cost. Hundreds, thousands of dollars. One bath. The picture here is of one so wealthy that he uses wine to wash and clean his garments. This ruler will bring Prosperity. All this prosperity affects the appearance of this future ruler from Judah as well, in that his eyes become darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. Two imageries that, again, have been challenging for me. Teeth whiter than milk. just can't help but think of the language of the Song of Solomon, where the bride is dazzled by the attractiveness of the man. Some of these same Hebrew words are used there. I think that this verse might describe the appearance and the power and the dignity of our Savior Jesus Christ when he comes one day in the future, during the millennial kingdom, to reign and rule. And if that is the case, if I'm right, the best part of that is we will all be there to see it. A future ruler that descends from Judah's tribe will be given tribute and obedience from all the peoples and will bring great prosperity to this world. Throughout our sermon today, we've learned many things. We've learned that sin sometimes brings consequences on ourselves and our families. We learned that privilege does not determine destiny. Our own choices and determinations impact it. We learned that sin does not have to define or damn us, but that God provides a way to break free from the curse of sin. But the greatest lesson we can learn from these first several verses is that salvation comes from the one whom God has appointed. In this passage, thousands of years before Christ's first coming, and even longer before his second coming, is a prophecy of a mighty ruler, a lion from the tribe of Judah, who will come as a victor with his hand on the neck of his enemies, and who will come as a powerful lion when people will give honor, obedience, and tribute to him. And so as we close, I would say this, brothers and sisters, do not lose heart. Jesus will someday come, and he will powerfully bear the ruler's scepter To bring justice to this world, and then he will reign with dignity and honor over all the peoples, and we can rejoice in that future hope. This past week, one of our faithful sisters, Dorothy McMillan, went home to be with Christ. She served for nearly 40 years with Baptist Mid Missionary uh, Baptist Midmissions as a missionary in Central African Republic, and later on, alongside of her husband, as a church planter in Washington D.C. It was my privilege this week to find to have someone give to me a journal Bible that she was working through this year as a 94 year old woman. Journal Bible, the book of Psalms, she made it through Psalm 33. And so as I'm reading through those pages, over and over again came this theme, came this theme, I cannot wait to see Christ. I cannot wait to see you. I think my time is short. I cannot wait to see you. Imagine what Jacob pictures here. A ruler with eyes like this, with teeth like this, with a scepter in his hand, who reigns and rolls. We too will someday see him. Perhaps he'll come soon. One day he will set up a kingdom on this planet. And he will reign and rule. And we'll enjoy that with him. I pray that God will give us faith and strength to continue. Let's pray together. Father, one day we will see our powerful victor, we will see the powerful lion. We rejoice in Dorothy McMillan's desire and her current experience. But Lord, when we consider the sinful, foolish choices of the brothers we've seen already, Reuben, Levi, and Simeon, and even Judah himself. When we consider the foolish mistakes that they made, Lord, I pray that you would protect us and preserve us from those sort of things. Lord, give us a greater confidence that one day we'll see one whose, whose teeth are as white as milk his eyes are darker than wine, who brings great prosperity and abundance with his coming, who's dignified and that he has a scepter and a ruler's staff and it never will depart from him until tribute comes to him and until uh, the obedience of the people, all the peoples come to him. we consider for a moment the great lion of the tribe of judah who's powerful strong the great victor puts his hand on the neck of his enemies enemies like satan enemies like sin death hell those are the sort of enemies our lion of the tribe of Judah is able to conquer. Well, we just read through these things in Genesis forty nine. We we hear the same preacher we hear every week, and we, we tend not to think of it very much, but Lord, give us a greater, a greater view of this ruler who's going to come so that all the peoples will obey. Lord, help us not live for our own selfish desires. Lord, help us say no to the anger that we talked about here today. Help us say no to our own besetting sins and failures, things like the lust of Reuben. Help us say no to these things and say yes to our lion, the tribe of Judah. Lord, help our young people Help our young people to consider the gifts and the abilities, perhaps the privilege that you've given to them. Lord, help them make wise decisions with their future so that Christ would be the center, the very center of their aspirations, goals, and dreams. Use their gifts for him. Lord, we pray that we would not lose sight of our great Christian hope the return of the Lord. Give us strong confidence in these things. That enables us in our own trials. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.